0: Thanks everyone. You can have a seat. So good to be with you. If we haven't met, my name is Michael, one of the pastors here. Uh, and uh, this morning, we're wrapping up our series that we've been going through over the past few weeks that we've called A Higher Love, where we've been walking through a book in the Old Testament called the Book of Ruth. Just a short book, and we've been going through it one chapter at a time. And one thing that we've asked you to do as we've gone through this series is just to read the book in Ruth on your own as you've tracked with us. Just to read it, maybe read the whole thing a few times over, or just to read it one chapter at a time as you've been tracking with us. And one of our prayers as we've gone through this series is that it's been helping you to just pay attention to just different themes in the Bible. Some more difficult than others, themes like death and suffering and pain and and, and even just the theme of God's character and learning that in a new and fresh way. And one of our hopes as we've gone through this is that it's taught you uh, just different things so far that you're learning just to commit to and growing in. Uh, I thought of a few of them that we'll put on the screen. If you missed any of the previous weeks, you can always just go back, go on YouTube and watch these. But if you've been with us, here are some of the things that I thought of that you've probably been learning so far that hopefully you're committing to growing in. The first is that we're uh, not defined by our suffering. We're not defined by our pains. That in moments where we think of deep pain and suffering, God has a way of meeting us there and even restoring us. Another one is just understanding God's character in a new way. How that even should then move us to understand, because He loves and cares for others, how He's calling us to participate in that. Another is just embracing God's grace. Maybe that was a new idea for you, to recognize God's goodness and God's grace isn't something that you can earn, but only something that you can receive. And yet there's a certain role that we play to embrace that and to live into that and to trust in that. Another is just trusting God when the steps aren't clear. That even when steps aren't clear, you don't know the answers or you don't know what's coming, God has a certain way of asking us to trust Him as we move forward and take those steps. One thing that kind of really hit me in a new way, as Willie, our pastoral apprentice, was sharing last week, it kind of relates to this last one of trusting in God when steps aren't clear, is I shared this with my, my home, the home group that I'm in this past week, is I find it really hard to trust God by asking for help from other people. Maybe that's you as well. And one of the things uh, Willie shared last week was that Ruth and Naomi really model what it means to trust God by, by asking for help from somebody. And uh, I noticed that in my life, maybe this is true for you, I'm good at asking for help when I don't actually need it. Like, I'll kind of pretend I need help. I do this with my kids all the time. I was like, Mommy, why is Daddy not know how to fold clothes or do dishes or whatever it is? No, I'm kidding. But I'm, like, it's easy to ask for help with those things, but I find it really hard to ask for help with something that's actually important to me. And something, some area where I actually really need help. And I don't know why, maybe it's because I find it, you know, I find it almost easier to pray to God to say, God, would you give me the strength to figure it out on my own? But it's harder to trust that God, you're the kind of God who would actually work through other people, and that I have to place my trust in them in a way that kind of gives up control, or I have to trust that even though I don't know the outcome, you're going to use them in a special way. And so just going through this series has really helped me kind of learn this in a fresh way that real faith is asking for help. Really having faith and trusting in God means learning to see how he's using other people. What's the thing for you as you've thought of this series that has really maybe hit you in a new way or, or caused you to kind of wrestle with something? Maybe it's something that's on this list. Maybe it's something that you think of from this past series that's not on this list that you've been really praying about, that you're really committed to growing in. What is it for you? And maybe it's not one of these specific things, but maybe just for you, it, what comes to mind is one of the people that we've been looking at in the book of Ruth so far. We started with uh, two people we've looked at. We're now at kind of three characters that I want to, or three people that I want to kind of highlight that we've looked at so far in this story. And as I go, we look at these characters, I want to give you just a, a kind of a quick recap since we're wrapping up the series on Ruth of what's happened so far. Okay, quick, quick recap. Can we do that? You stay with me? it be super quick. You can even time me, but well, let's go through it together. At uh, it, first, it the story starts with Naomi, and at the beginning of the story, Naomi leaves her uh, town of Bethlehem, her region of Judah, and she goes because there's a famine where she is, so she goes to the neighboring country Moab with her husband and her two sons, and while she's there, her husband and her two sons die. They die, and she finds herself in this painful situation, and so she heads back to Bethlehem, and one of her new daughters-in-law, Ruth, decides that she's going to come with her. And so they get back, and while they're in, they find themselves just in this desperate situation of poverty, on their own. Ruth meets a man named Boaz while she's gleaning wheat at his field, his farm, and she, she, he shows her this incredible kindness. Maybe you remember from the past week some of the ways that he does this. And last week in chapter 3, we looked at how Naomi's, Naomi had this bold plan for Ruth to basically kind of propose to Boaz, to ask him to marry her, as he has this special role as the guardian redeemer for their family. And we've talked about this, how this title of guardian redeemer is really important. Some of your translations may say kinsman redeemer or family redeemer. And it's really important. It's something we've been repeating over the past few weeks because it's so critical to the story or to the book of Ruth to understand this. What it means is that in this culture, there were certain members of a family or an extended family who had a special role as the redeemer of that family, to be ready really to step in in an emergency situation, whether that's to buy land from a relative if they were desperate to keep them from going to slavery, or whether it was to step in even to marry someone who would otherwise be kind of more marginalized in their society as a widow. But if you remember from last week, Ruth, at the end of chapter 3, she boldly sort of proposes to Boaz, and his answer to her is a little bit disappointing. He tells her that there's actually another guardian redeemer in the family who's more closely related to her, and so he's going to see first if that person will marry her instead. So how was that? How did I do? Good? You tracked with me? All right. If none of that made sense to you, too bad. No, again, you can go back and watch. But, but picking up this morning... We pick up the story where Boaz now finds himself in an unexpected place that I think we can all relate to where we've had seasons or times in our lives where this has happened to us. And he finds himself all of a sudden in a moment where he's presented with a situation that's really someone else's problem. Like it's really not actually his problem. And what he's presented with is this particular complex situation that's really the problem of Ruth and Naomi. And so now he finds himself in this tension where he has to figure out if he's going to participate, and what that participation is going to look like, knowing that depending on what he does, this could really, really impact his life, or he could choose to actually ignore it completely. And what's special about his response that we've seen so far and we're going to continue to see is he doesn't just tell Ruth or Naomi that it's just their problem to deal with and kind of let them figure out. He doesn't even just say, let's pray together and then hope the problem will go away. He really kind of leans in He doesn't ignore what's happening here. And instead, again, he quickly kind of pivots. He recognizes that not only is this a situation where he senses God is calling him to participate in some way, but he also realizes that in this moment, he has to act with wisdom, and he has to act with wisdom very quickly. Often we don't think about that with a wise decision, that we have so much time to think about it, but he has to make a wise decision and he has to move very quickly. And so at the beginning of chapter 4, what Boaz does next is not only surprising, I think, to most of us, but it's probably even a little bit counterintuitive. Basically what he does is he uh, goes like, to the local government and he holds a meeting. Okay, not what we expect, probably not what most of us would do. It's not exactly what happens, but it's pretty close. Okay, you'll see in a moment. Uh, here's what it says happens. It's from the beginning of, uh, it's actually beginning of chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. It says this. Boaz went to the town gate and took a seat there. Just then, the family redeemer he had mentioned came by, so Boaz called out to him, Come over here and sit down, friend. I want to talk to you. So they sat down together. Then Boaz called ten leaders from the town and asked them to sit as witnesses. So, kind of a strange way that he uh, deals with this problem or addresses it initially. But to give you a bit of a context, while you read this and it kind of sounds like Boaz just kind of went to a random part in the town and he ran into the other redeemer and just pulled some people together, uh, while God's clearly kind of at work behind the scenes, what what Boaz does in this situation is actually very, very strategic in their culture. Uh, In their culture at the time, the town gate was actually this place that was kind of an open space in the town that functioned almost like a town square would today. It was a place where like, a lot of daily activity was happening, business and transactions were taking place, and it's also the place where the, the leaders or the elders would regularly make to make really important decisions on behalf of the rest of the community, whether that was legal decisions or religious decisions or social decisions, whatever else it was. And so he goes to this spot on purpose to kind of hold, meet with these people and to hold this important meeting. He makes this choice in this moment to go to the town gate, to take this decision not only to the other redeemer, but to the other leaders, knowing that it's important to discern this together. So in his wisdom, Boaz knows that this isn't something he can just decide on his own, because he knows it affects not only himself and not only Ruth and Naomi, but it affects the whole community. And so he brings it to them, and in doing this, he really models for us, I think, a picture of wise and healthy discernment or decision-making and leadership that we so rarely see in our world today. In our culture today, we see a leader as someone who almost has this special ability to just discern things on their own and take quick action on by themselves. We almost admire kind of a kind of like trailblazer who has the courage to to do things their own way and won't let anybody else get in the way. It's almost like to really do the right thing, you have to do it yourself. It's that idea. And what we don't celebrate in our culture is somebody who, when faced with a decision, holds a meeting with other people, right? That's not something we see as a good thing. We think meetings are just a waste of time or that entering kind of a healthy process and submitting to that just means that 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 process is in place maybe to slow us down or try to place limits on us. And I think when this becomes the way that we see discernment or leadership or decision-making, it can become then completely disconnected from a healthy understanding of the role of a community or the role that wise leaders play in our lives. And this is so common, not just I think in the rest of culture, but it's so common even among Christians, maybe especially among Christians, that we can do this. We can almost be these, or we've created this world where there's these rogue Christians that they think they just kind of hear a word from God or take a Bible verse out of context or become an expert at something overnight and then quickly make a decision that's completely disconnected from any healthy community or that's isolated from from kind of talking to other wise voices and leaders. And then we're almost surprised when those same decisions end up causing division or confusion or end up even hurting Their own spouses, or their own families, or even themselves, and again, I want to point out that's not to say that God doesn't speak to us in a very personal, individual way, and that He, you know, that, that doesn't shape kind of even how we make good decisions or how we can even use that to encourage others. But I think we have so lost the wisdom of knowing when to seek other counsel or to check what we're sensing if that if what we're sensing God is saying is what he's saying by getting affirmation from other people. Or even just thinking about who is affected by our decision. When I think about this idea, one kind of healthy example that I think of, of kind of this healthy discernment process, is when the 180 first started. Now, this was kind of six or seven years ago. I wasn't here yet at the time. I came about a few years ago. But while I was a pastor in Ontario, I heard a little bit about this process of... uh, kind of how the 180 started and what happened within the first couple years. And maybe you know this story, but in the first couple years of the 180, they started meeting in this building, worshipping regularly, and after, kind of within a couple years, they heard that in order to keep worshipping here, because this was an industrial zone, they actually needed to have a zoning change. They needed to apply for a zoning change for this to be a religious zone where we could keep worshipping. And so they entered into this complex process of applying to the, to the city of Laval, going through these different steps, meeting even with the council, and doing all these things, kind of even sharing why they thought they should be granted this. And when I heard about this, or when I was thinking about this, I thought it would have been so easy if the church just ignored this process completely. Right? Maybe you feel that way. It would have just been easier if they said, ah, we'll just stick it to them, or we'll continue to meet in secret, or we'll, like, we'll meet and we'll just take whatever fine comes our ways. It doesn't even matter because we know God's at work. But instead, because the church already had a deep sense that God was working, that he was calling us to a new chapter, there was a sense that even if the outcome isn't exactly what we expect it to be or what we hope, we can enter this process because even if we don't end up at this building, there's a sense that God is with us and that he's guiding us through this process, and so we can just kind of submit to this process. And because they did that, the benefit now is that we have such a great relationship with our city that we cultivate in different ways. And there's a deep affirmation that it was almost kind of a miracle that the city of Laval at this time would grant religious zoning to this area. And so we can even just celebrate that affirmation that God is really at work here in a special way. Now, this kind of principle of just healthy discernment and what that means to kind of submit to that process isn't something that just happens kind of on a big scale with groups of people. It's also something that's really important for us to think about personally as individuals. Maybe you've never thought about this before, but I think about a season in my life where I really learned this in a really healthy and special way is when I became a pastor. Maybe you never thought about becoming a pastor, coming with a certain process, but when I was in Ontario, uh, after moving from Montreal, and uh, I, I was getting a, kind of a growing sense that God was calling me into full-time ministry, some people were kind of saying that to me, um, I, that, that sense was growing. I actually didn't, couldn't just decide that on my own. I actually had to submit to this healthy process that was like a six-month to a year process where I connected with other Uh, pastors and leaders, friends, family. And I even went through a formal process with our our Alliance family, our denomination, where they interviewed me and asked questions and got a sense of how God was at work. And because I went through that whole process, there was now a sense as I moved forward, even though I didn't know exactly what that would look like, there was a deep affirmation. There was a deep support from the community that God was doing something new. And so I look back on that as just a really special way that I learned this. While Boaz in this moment as well has a growing sense that God is doing something new and that in some way he's asking Boaz to participate, he doesn't just make the decision on his own. He knows how important it is for the community together to decide and to affirm these next steps together and he knows how much is at stake for everyone involved and he doesn't in his wisdom, he doesn't want to end up actually causing more division in the town, are making things even more difficult for Ruth and Naomi if they don't have the support of the town. And so he submits to this process and he trusts that God is at work, whatever the outcome will be. Now, if you're like me and you think of Boaz and you look at this story, maybe you think, like, okay, he made a wise decision. That's easy for him, but how did he know what steps to make so quickly? Like, how did he just know how to, what health, healthy discernment looked like? Or maybe you think if I was in his shoes, I would have had no idea what to do in that situation. But I think as we look at Boaz, it's important to realize that this is something that he didn't just learn by accident or he didn't just learn overnight. It took probably many years of cultivating this, just learning to be a good leader, learning to care for others, and probably even learning from the leaders that went before him. Something that's so important to note about healthy discernment or decision-making that makes it so hard for us is that it's something that needs to be cultivated. It's something we actually need to learn and practice and grow in. As you think about this, how are you doing in this area? With the area of healthy discernment, is there a part of that that you need to just grow in? Whether that's learning when to kind of seek wise counsel or kind of when to kind of, what a healthy process looks like to figure out next steps. Or what even just healthy Christian biblical discernment even means or what that looks like. And we actually have a series uh, coming up starting next week, wink, wink, that we've thought about quite a while as we've and prayed about coming this fall. It's actually a series on discernment and it's called Revisiting Discernment, a Biblical Model of Discipleship. And so maybe for you as you think about this, a next step is just committing to being with us and learning with us for that series because healthy discernment is so easy to kind of ignore for most of our daily life or small decisions until we have a big decision to make and we don't know what to do so as a church can we just commit to growing in this together uh, to learning about what this means and, and to even just recognize the importance of this even in modeling good decision making for the next generation or good decision making for the rest of our community And so as Boaz meets with the leaders of this town and he meets with the other redeemers, he wisely meets with them and then presents the whole situation to them. And so this is how that goes. Uh, We're going to have some of that on the screen, but I'm going to read the first part of it and then you'll see kind of, we'll pick up the conversation in the second part on the screen. So just listen carefully. This is what uh, he says, or this is how the meeting starts. It says, And Boaz said to the family redeemer, You know Naomi who came back from Moab. She is selling the land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should speak to you about it so that you can redeem it if you wish. If you want the land, then buy it here in the presence of these witnesses. But if you don't want it, let me know right away because I am next in line to redeem it after you. So the man replied, All right, I'll redeem it. Then Boaz told him, Of course, your purchase of the land from Naomi also requires that you marry Ruth the Moabite widow, sneaky Boaz. That way, we can have children, who, or she can have children, who will carry on her husband's name and keep the land in the family. Then I can't redeem it, the family redeemer replied, because this might endanger my own estate. You redeem the land, I can't do it. Now, as you look at this, this there's a complex story of what's happening. As a quick reminder, the guardian's responsibility is not only connected to the redemption just of land or of property, but it's connected to the redemption of people as a commitment to care for that person who's part of that land or part of that household. And so when Boaz first tells this redeemer about the opportunity, he first says, sure, I'll redeem the land. That's fine. That's easy. But then when he's told about this part about marrying Ruth, he changes mind and he says, No. Now maybe for you, as you read this, it's easy to kind of quickly judge the actions of this other redeemer. I know I do when I look at this. But you have to first really understand how much is at stake for him to say yes. It's hard for us to kind of fully understand this because of kind of the legal complexity of what's happening here with this rule. But uh, essentially what it means is that now if this Redeemer, because it's connected to marrying Ruth, if he marries, uh, takes the, redeems the land, marries Ruth, it would mean that instead of him inheriting the land and the benefits of that or even the financial benefit, it would get passed on to Ruth's future child and stay in, in her husband's name, her first husband's name. And so as a result, this Redeemer, in doing this, really wouldn't have anything to gain from it. In fact, it would actually be more of a risk to him. He sees even that marrying Ruth, who's an outsider, comes with significant risk to himself, to be able to care for her and all that sort of thing. And so he decides that because he's already busy with his own land, with his own estate, because there's too much risk or sacrifice involved in doing this, he says no. Now again, it's important to recognize that in him saying no, he doesn't do anything wrong, doesn't make him a bad person, and he even probably has a lot of good reasons to say no. And yet, we learn from this story that because he makes this decision, as we'll soon see, he misses out on the deeper place God is calling to him or the larger purposes that God has in store for this situation. He misses out on the deeper way God wants him to experience his goodness and his purposes if he was to say yes. Because he's so caught up in his own affairs, he's not willing to kind of make the sacrifice to redeem Ruth and Naomi, he becomes even a redeemer who's only a redeemer by title and not by actual actual participation in God's larger purposes of redemption. I think this is so common for us to do in our lives as well. I know I feel this, that it's easy to just go, just just get so busy or so preoccupied with our lives or our own activities or distracted by something that we actually miss out on the deeper thing that God is doing or that he's inviting us into to participate in. Maybe you've heard Pastor Dom say this, he says this often, but sometimes the devil doesn't just have to make us, doesn't have to make us bad, he just has to make us busy. He doesn't have to make us bad, he just has to make us busy and get distracted by other priorities. And we we get busy enough, we're so caught up in our own priorities or our only weekly activities that we'll actually stop paying attention or that we'll never say yes to the deeper things that God's actually calling us to. And over time, I think this can happen in such a subtle way that we become people who are then disconnected from God's bigger purposes. We become disconnected from our identity, maybe, as redeemed people who are meant to participate in what God's doing. We can miss, then, opportunities to sacrifice for the sake of others, or to trust God with our time and with our resources, or to kind of help in carrying for somebody who sees themselves as an outsider, inviting them in. It becomes too easy to say, that's just not going to work for my schedule, or I just have too much going on. As a pastor, one of the real special privileges I have of being part of this church is that I get to kind of oversee or help with a lot of our midweek discipleship opportunities, things that happen during the week. A couple of them that are happening right now is Alpha, another one is Home Groups, and one of the things that makes this so special for me is that I get to see so many of you uh, who could have said that you were just too busy Who are just committing in new ways. Maybe for the first time being in one of those spaces and just committing to learning and to growing and to paying attention to how God is then kind of teaching you something that will help bless your family or bless your kids or help you to share your faith as you step into the workplace. I also get to work with just a lot of our leaders and so just even seeing somebody serving in that space for the first time and using their gifts has been really special to me. And again, i are just proud of you for doing that. I know how easy it is to just say no or, or how busy our lives can get. And yet you still sensed that it was worth making this sacrifice and committing this time because you sensed that God was inviting you to a deeper place and to paying attention to even just the joy that you wanted to give as you stepped into that. Maybe for some of you, you're here and you're listening to this and this is kind of new for you and you're recognizing maybe that this coming year is just a great time to step into something new. You're sensing that maybe God is inviting you to step in in a new way to, and to commit to something new because just, even just trusting he's going to surprise you and you're going to experience his, his goodness in new ways. One of the things that makes, another thing really that makes Boaz such a, a good model for us and that is that when he's faced with the same situation that the other Redeemer is faced with, he's willing to step in and to say yes. Even though he knows it's a huge risk for him as well. Because he senses that God is doing something that's far beyond him. And so he says yes. Now a bit of a side note, this is more if you've kind of read this chapter, chapter four a little bit on your own, or if you go home and read it this week, you'll notice just as they, uh, he kind of, Boaz and the other redeemer kind of come to the end and seal this deal that there's this strange moment where the other redeemer takes off his sandal and passes it to Boaz. Okay, kind of strange, but in this culture it was a way that they actually just kind of sealed a transaction. So as I hear that, I'm really glad that doesn't happen today. Don't please, if we're like you know making a deal or agree to something, don't hand me your sandal. I'll walk away. I'll make my gag. It'll be gross. But part of me kind of wishes this was part of our, our culture, when I th- maybe it would make my wife buy less things on Facebook Marketplace. <laughs> we were the same boast. We don't need one more basket. She probably would uh, be more hesitant if she was handed a sandal. Uh, but anyway, you could read that on your own. But they, but, but they seal this deal, and then Boaz turns to the elders, and what actually sounds like a, a growing crowd of witnesses who are seeing this interaction, and he says this. We'll have it on the screen. He says, Then Boaz said to the elders and to the crowd standing around, You are witnesses that today I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, which is her husband, Chilion and Malin, her sons, and with the land I have acquired Ruth, the Moabite widow of Malin, to be my wife. This way she can have a son to carry on the family name of her dead husband, and to inherit the family property here in his hometown. You are all witnesses today. Isn't that beautiful? Boaz is the one who's willing to step in. And in doing this, he not only stays true to this title that he's been given as guardian redeemer, but he's able to then witness, he becomes a participant and witnesses and points others to God who's the true redeemer. And his title is even a reflection of who God is. And because of his faithfulness, not only are Ruth and Naomi redeemed and blessed, and you're going to see that they're embraced by the community, but they then become something that's much bigger than anything they could have imagined. And so what happens next, you can read it on your own, but uh, Boaz and Ruth get married. It's really affirmed by the community. They get married, and they have a baby boy later that they name Obed. Obed. And all of the elders of this town, and the leaders, they bless their marriage. And then later on, you hear about uh, Naomi holding this baby for the first time. And the the women just talk about how thankful they are to God and how blessed she is as well, that God has restored her life from a place of just bitterness to this great joy. And then the book, right at the end, kind of ends in a very unexpected way. And maybe in a way that's a little bit anticlimactic. It ends with a genealogy. Now, maybe you some of you can't even say genealogy, you don't know what that is. Just It ends with a family tree. Okay? Now, I don't know about you, but there's nothing excited about a genealogy, nothing exciting about it. My mom's really excited by genealogies, and that's the only person I know who loves genealogies. Mom, if you're listening, please tell me more about my family. I love it, uh, but I'm just not going to do that work myself. So it's really surprising that this book, with all its ups and downs and all its drama, ends in this way. But it's here for a very special reason. And one of the reasons we actually did this series on this book in the Old Testament is because we care about helping you understand how it fits with the whole Bible and to see how it's connected to God's larger story of redemption. And so it ends with the the genealogy. And part of why it does this is it connects how God was faithful to Boaz's ancestors long ago how he was faithful in this story, and it connects then to how he's going to be faithful with Boaz's future grandson, which will be King David. And so we'll see that in a moment. But not only that, now, as Christians who have the New Testament to look back on, we know that we and we get to see how this same genealogy now points us directly to Jesus. We get to see how it points to God's much larger picture and story of redemption that happened in and through Jesus for all of creation. In fact, this same genealogy that we're going to see is included word for word in the genealogy or the family tree of Jesus himself. Here's what it says. Uh, it says, Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron was the father of Ram, Ram was the father of Aminadab. Aminadab was the father of Nishan. Nishan was the father of Salmon. I probably should have practiced these names more. Salmon was the father of Boaz, okay, that's an important one, whose mother was Rahab. And Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse was the father of King David. And then Matthew's gospel goes on all the way down to Jesus. These same family members who are listed in David's genealogy uh, at the end of Ruth, uh, that include the names of Booth, both Boaz and Ruth are included in Jesus' own family tree. And what makes this so incredible as we look at this is not only is Boaz's name included, and he's part of this story, but Ruth is included as well. This is something that was so rare in ancient culture to even include a woman at all in such an important genealogy. But not only do they include Ruth as a woman, but she's also included as an outsider to the story. This genealogy that first seems so insignificant actually will forever link Ruth and her story of how God redeemed her with the good news of Jesus and the larger thing that God is doing. That's so beautiful. That even though she was first an outsider, because of her just willingness to embrace God's grace. And his goodness in her life. And to trust in him, her own story of redemption and restoration and trust becomes forever linked to God's larger story of redemption of all creation and all people through Jesus. One of the images I thought of as I thought about this idea of a genealogy was I thought about a quilt. Maybe you know what a quilt is. Maybe you have one. You know somebody who makes them. Uh, Growing up, I actually had a neighbor next door whose mom was an artist. And I always found her like really eclectic, but I would go over there and there would be like these little scraps of, of different kinds of material all over the floor with scissors and sewing and I didn't understand what it was, it looked like they were ratty, I didn't understand what they were for, but if you know the history of quilts and why they were first made, they were actually made because there were these scraps of material that would have otherwise been thrown out or not been used for anything that somebody realized they could, they could kind of put it together to make a blanket. For a really special purpose. And not only that, but when they came together, it it made a special kind of pattern. And as I think about this image of a quilt, I think that in a sense, this is what God did for Ruth. That as she thinks about how her past that was so painful and broken, that he could have just ignored her or discarded her or forgotten about that part of their history. But instead, he redeems her. He includes her in the larger plan of redemption. Somebody who is an outsider who is now included in, the, in, in Jesus' own family tree. And so this genealogy shows how, e- even in a bigger way, God loves to use people who are outsiders to the story or who li- whose lives just seem too broken or too painful or whose situations just seem like they'll never change. That He uses them, and he redeems them, and he points them to God, his larger plan of redemption and he uses them to participate in his purposes. And so for us, as we learn to embrace God's grace for our lives, as we learn to participate in God's ways, because of what Jesus has done for us, he transforms us and he uses our own stories for his larger purposes. Maybe that's a new idea for you. Maybe that seems a bit scary. It's still hard for you to even believe that God could use you for his larger purposes to bless others. Maybe you feel like you're just too much of an outsider and that will never change. Or when you think back on your life, you feel like your life was just too broken or you've made too many mistakes for God to ever redeem you or let alone even use you for his purposes. Maybe you just feel too insignificant. But as we come to the end of the book of Ruth, I want to warn about something that's easy to do when you look at the life of Ruth and Boaz. It's even easy to do, and we think about other people who have really powerful stories of how God has used them before, that it's easy to look at that and compare it to ourselves and think, I could never relate to any of that. And so why would God ever use me? He's never going to use me like that. And while part of that is true when you think about Ruth or Boaz, that there's this unique and special way that God uses them and includes them in the story that will never be kind of quite the same for us, God still wants to use you in really special and unique ways, even if they feel small or insignificant. As you think about that, how may God be wanting to use you and your story to encourage someone else or to bless someone else? Maybe that's just to encourage somebody who's going through a really difficult and painful situation right now and they can't see the way out. Or maybe it's to share with your children Or with a friend or a co-worker. Just a small way that you've seen God at work in your life and you've seen him be faithful to you. Maybe it's just learning even to make room in your own schedule to welcome in and to care for somebody else. To serve alongside others and just inviting people in. Or even just to share about something that God is teaching you in this series. That there's a small part that you're just going to learn to share with somebody else. Or allow that to shape, again, how you interact with people in your family or how you interact with your coworkers. And so as we wrap up this series this morning, let me just remind you again of some of the things that we've been learning about to think about how God maybe wants to not only shape you in this, but use you in a way that will bless others. That even in the most painful situations, they don't have to define you or have the final say over who you are because of what God is doing and because of who He is. Maybe it's just learning, to again, to embrace God's grace and God's goodness as a free gift that you could never earn, but just to learn to embrace it and to live into that. Maybe it's to learn to trust Him and to even ask for help in moments where the next steps don't seem clear, to learn to take a step forward in trust, to trust that God is doing something new in and through you. Maybe it's being willing to really make sacrifices or take a risk that he's calling you to make because of the bigger story or the larger purposes that he's calling you to participate in. The book of Ruth, as we wrap up, points to a God whose plans and whose purposes are so much bigger than we could ever imagine. Points to a God who is always redeeming and restoring because of what Jesus has done for us. And yet as we learn to embrace God's grace in our lives, as we learn then to participate and take small steps of trust in him, he uses us and our stories as well for his larger purposes. There's such a special promise to us and something that we want to keep growing in together. So as we close this morning, Mary's going to play in a bit in the background. Let's just pray together. God, as we look back on this story, from so long ago in the Old Testament. Thank you that you have always been faithful. That you were faithful even before we were part of the story or aware of you. You were faithful to Ruth and to Boaz. You were faithful even to their ancestors. And you were so faithful through what you did through Jesus in your greater plan for redemption. And so as we think about that, help us to just take those next steps of not only trusting in you, not only of receiving that and embracing you as the God who always redeems and restores, but that we would trust you as we learn what it means to participate with you in your greater purposes. That our our families would be blessed because of that. Our marriages. That others who see themselves as outsiders to the story would come to know that you're the God who invites them in. That you want to show them your, your love in a new and special way. And so, God, we just want to be people who are shaped by this, who are committed to these things. And so help us, just whatever that looks like in each of our lives, to just take that next step of trusting in you. And trusting that even when we can't see it, you are doing something so much bigger than us that we get to be a part of. And so would you just be with us, go before us, as we learn to just take those steps with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks so much, everyone, for being with us. Uh, Don't rush off. you want to take a time, we have uh, a prayer space and a prayer team who would love to just take the time to pray with you. Maybe, again, especially for you if it's just learning to just ask for prayer for something you've never done that before. want to point to you, too, as well, uh, just a reminder that next week we're starting our series on revisiting discernment. So please don't miss that. Come and join us for that as we learn together. Thanks so much. Have a great week. See you guys. Mm-hmm.